Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Using carbon dioxide as a source of fuel, rather than treating it as a waste product, promises a new era of sustainability. Professor Jeffrey Ozin from the University of Toronto is Global Chair at the University of Bath. In this lecture, he asks whether we can achieve an unlimited supply of carbon-neutral solar fuels from the sun, rather than depleting the finite source of legacy fossil fuels from the earth. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's all on my Blackberry, which happens to be Canadian. <laughs> but I'm a Brit, as you, as you notice. It's a great honour to um, receive the the inaugural Global Chair. And it's exciting to be able to present to you uh, this lecture um, on, let's call it a global artificial photosynthesis paradigm. I love this picture because it sort of shows this fusion reactor, which we haven't got working on Earth yet after 30 years, although they say another 30 years will be fine. And you can see our wonderful planet there um, and the moon. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, this is a catchphrase that I came up with. Um, let's let's uh, make solar fuels from the sun rather than taking our legacy fossil fuels from the earth. Why use up the capital, what we have? Why not invest in it? So, um, basically, I guess the message is the leaf knows how. And so we're going to copy the leaf. So basically, let's start by asking the question, what is a solar fuel? So let's sort of say it's an energy-rich chemical compound, such as methanol or methane or carbon monoxide, made from sunlight, carbon dioxide, and water through copying the leaf, an artificial form of photosynthesis um, that creates a carbon-neutral, renewable, green alternative to fossil fuels. Wouldn't that be wonderful if our atmosphere was our source of fuel? So the, I'm setting up the talk roughly like this. Um, I realize half the audience is possibly public, another half roughly faculty. So um, I decided not to go too deeply into details. Um, but I'm going to look at the problem, look at a solution, um, look at the cost, look at the milestones, a timeline towards commercialization. So we're way ahead of where we are, but let's, let's have a go at this, right? Let's, let's have a look at this dream uh, that everybody owns it, it belongs to everybody, it would change the geopolitical scene if we could keep steady state in carbon dioxide, so you can burn, 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 whether it's fossil or, or renewables, and basically cycle it in the way that the leaf has done. Um, and um, Okay, so let's give you a fact. Um, Non-renewable fossil fuels produce carbon dioxide. Chemists are very good at analyzing things. We know the carbon dioxide content is increasing. It's reached a critical 400 parts per million according to the climate physicists, and it's rising and it will probably continue to rise. So the greenhouse gas effect, right? The sun comes in, we burn fossil fuels, the CO2 ends up in the troposphere and acts as a reflective heat shield, okay? So that's the concept in simple terms. 
So more or less, if you read the literature, there's a lot of zeros there. We're pumping 46 billion tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year. I read an interesting book recently by Margaret Heffman. Everyone should read it. Are we ignoring the obvious at our peril? Now, I'm not going to get into the climate debate. I know that you're thinking I'm going to do that. I'm not. You'll see. Because I don't think the climate debate is actually very helpful. So there's no harm in showing this. This is a report. I think it was almost 1,000 pages. The executive summary was about 50, so everyone can read the summary. So this is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Hundreds and hundreds of climate physicists have basically gone from 5% to 95% certainty that we're the cause of climate change. Okay. This is a great picture. That's one ton of carbon dioxide. Right? Just imagine 46 billion of these pumped into our atmosphere every year. It doesn't seem right, does it, that we should be doing this and that everything is going to be stable forever for our children and our grandchildren. Now, this is a very interesting cartoon. Right? This is the climate southern. Independence, rainforest, sustainability. I don't know if you've seen this one, Matt, have you? No. Oh, this is a great one. Green jobs, livable cities. What if it's a big hoax and we create a better world for nothing? You know? Um, but, you know, when I sort of listen to the various people debating this, you know, the believers and the disbelievers, the climate physicists who are all arguing about F, whether the feedback, you know, the temperature rise is a constant divided by 1 minus F, and they're all arguing whether F is positive or negative. It's a very simple equation, right? We get it, right? Um, and so I think it's very difficult for governments, it's difficult for industry, it's even difficult for academics. When I got up and tried to raise money in this field, you know, I used this as my, as my means of, of raising funds and getting a group together as fast as I could in order to compete in this field. But I wasn't really confident that what I was saying was correct because there is so much confusion. So I think it's very, very difficult when you write a proposal and you get up and you try to make a case on this because there are so many opposing views. Anyway, I've decided very recently when I went to get the third tranche of money in my contract on this, it was a very large contract uh, and so forth, um, I decided that I wasn't going to use that approach. And I'll tell you now, I was successful. I got the third tranche of money using this, this type of an approach. Is there a silver bullet solution to resolve this problem? And I'm going to make the case, yes, there is. I don't think any of the, the renewables that we see is really making much of a dent on the 10, 20, 30 terawatts. You know, how many, how many, how many watts have we got of solar after 30 years? About 10 or 20 gigawatts? You know, when you look at, I don't want to get into, you know, bio and energy balance and things like that, but I don't really see a silver bullet solution to globally, right, to have a global effect, to have an effect on the, the global rise um, of carbon dioxide. 
So let's call it, and I'm not the first to call it this, by the way, but I'm beginning to think that this is a terrific way to go, scientifically speaking, okay, as a scientist. So let's talk of a new CO2 economy, right? Carbon dioxide should not be regarded as a waste product for the general public to dread. This is the argument. Should be a friend, not a foe. At the moment, we think of it as something dangerous, right? I think it's something to love, not to hate. Why? It's a bounteous resource of latent carbon spread uniformly across the globe that belongs to everybody, just like the Human Genome Project. You think about it. Who does that belong to? Right? This belongs to everybody. CO2 can be transformed through chemistry to a boundless supply of carbon-neutral, renewable energy to sustain life for humankind forever. So we just got to basically learn how to do chemistry at a global scale, at a globally significant scale, scale with carbon dioxide, whether it's taken out of thin air or whether it's taken out of concentrated sources. Look, who knows better than Canada, right, for capturing carbon dioxide and storing it? Why store it? Let's use it. It's a source of carbon. So, you know, a lot of people get this. They sort of like this argument, right, which is get busy, chemists. So anyway, this inspired me to write my first poem. <laughs> probably think that this old guy is sort of really losing it, but I wrote an ode to CO2, and it was published. <laughs> <laughs> oh, small molecule, a friend or a foe, to love or to hate, and here's the big one, to understand you better before it's too late and we all become CO2. Anyone who's interested, I pub publish an opinion editorial every month. Uh, it's provocative, it's opinionated, it shakes the old and it helps the young. That's the idea. It's in material views in, in Wiley. Okay, so let's get a little bit more down to business. Um, let's talk about this, this green energy. Um, it's a puzzle. Um, it's a puzzle and there's a very high concentration of outstanding materials chemists here both computational and experimental. And I know that they get this, right? Now, not everyone in the audience will know what a semiconductor is, but basically, semiconductors are material. It's got very special properties. Everyone knows about silicon and solar cells and things like that. So basically, um, semiconductors, we know how to take these materials and create electrons and the opposite charge. They're called holes. These are electrons and holes. So we know how to do that. And we know how to basically separate them and make electricity. So I give a tick, right? That's a solar cell. We know how to make these new energy efficient light emitting diodes. I know the guy in Germany who did this, Wolfgang Schnick. He's very, very proud of these things here. Um, he actually won some huge award in Germany recently in terms of the number of terawatts of energy that he saved in Germany by going over to a 95% efficient uh, light-emitting diode to replace the incandescent lamp, which is only 5% efficient, right? And so here we know how to take the electron and hole and make them combine to give light. So there's another tick. Here's the big one. Can we take electrons and holes and separate them long enough so they can do chemistry? 
and that is the area of solar fuels. And PC means photocatalysis. And I put a cross there. We've known how to do this for 30 years. But the conversion rates and the efficiencies are 1,000 to 10,000 times too low. You can publish papers in nature and science, but it ain't going global. Oh, I said the word ain't. My wife hates me using the word ain't. It will not go global. <laughs> My wife's here. So uh, <laughs> she called me out on this one recently. There was this message. I got it out into the National Post. And I was very excited that this reporter was prepared to put his neck on the ground and put this message out that I just gave you. Molecule not to fear. It's a friend. We just have to understand it better and so forth. And uh, he asked me, how long is this going to take? And I say, it ain't going to be fast, you know, colloquial. So my wife didn't like that. So, <laughs> so I wrote back to the reporter. I said, why did you leave that in there? He said, it was colorful. It was colorful. OK. So look, what have I said here? In these three ways of thinking, photons to electrons right, make photovoltaics. Electrons to photons make light-emitting diodes. Photons to fuel is what we're talking about. It's a natural if you think about it. This should be there, right? And we want to do this with carbon dioxide. So this is a cartoon done by Wendong Wang in my group. And you can sort of see we're turning over a new leaf. It's green. And uh, inside this leaf are all sorts of interesting nanomaterials, right? Because inside the real leaf, there's a very complex mix of organic and inorganic materials in there, but there's some interesting nanomaterials in there that I'll mention. And you'll see the different sizes and shapes and the way they're organized in different ways. And, and this is really what chemists have learned how to do over the last 30 years, to control size and shape and organization, self-assembly, to give you function and utility. So we want to figure out what goes on inside the leaf, which is pretty well understood. I'm not going to go into that. And somehow simplify that process down to something that's practical to the point that it could go global. So we're talking 46 gigatons. Imagine that. That would be the largest chemical factory ever on the face of this planet. 46 gigatons spread over, say, 50 countries. So there's the silver bullet. And at one end, we've got biological photosynthesis. So we take everything we've learned about how this takes carbon dioxide, water, sunlight, gives us all the oxygen we breathe. But instead of making carbohydrates and energy-rich fuel, we'll make things that we can use in our cars, in our factories, in our buildings, fuel cells, and so forth. Right? So the chemistry on paper looks fantastically simple, doesn't it? Right? This shouldn't be reversible. I want it to go one way. Sorry about that. <laughs> so these are, this is the leaf. And basically, we want to understand how do you choose a material? Right? How do you choose a material that can perform that type of chemistry with sunlight at, let's say, 10% efficiency, which is the Department of Energy target for this field? The Americans are there. They know what? They want. They've done the techno-economic analyses. They know whether it's cost competitive. Um, OK, so this is something that I'm sure those in the UK will recognize, because it came out of a UK report. I like this diagram. Uh, this is the global artificial photosynthesis vision of fuel from the sun. 
Um, basically, what have we got? There's a factory. These, this looks like solar cells. This is a solar fuels farm. So these panels will be made of this silver bullet material. That's going to have the ability to do what I just said. And what's going to happen? You generate power by, say, burning natural gas, and you make loads of greenhouse gas, right, which goes into the atmosphere. And what we're going to do is we're going to use these materials to perform the chemistry I just showed to convert it into, say, methane, and goes back. So you cycle. So you could imagine something like that. So this would be a carbon-neutral green economy. How about your house? Here's a so-called solar fuel zero emission house. Basically, in this house, as well as having photovoltaics, you could have solar fuels generating materials. So you could generate methanol or methane if we could get it selective enough, which will run your car, generate electricity in a fuel cell. You could do heating, cooking, generate electricity. So again, this is a possibility for a carbon-neutral green economy. So you've got your power generation, you've got your homes. And um, there are people out there who've sort of done the engineering on what these artificial leaves would look like. This is an example of a photocatalytic solar chimney reactor system. It sort of looks a bit like a leaf. This could be, say, a kilometer squared. And through convection, you can draw the CO2 and the water and give you back the methane and, and recycle the system. And I'll give you a techno-economic analysis of that that we've done in Toronto. So this would be a, a way of having a solar fuel zero emissions gas plant. And you can imagine building integrated systems and so forth. So the way that we think about photovoltaics, why shouldn't we think about solar fuels in that way? Okay. So how are we going to get fuel from the sun? And again, everyone here who's in uh, the field that I mentioned know all about this, whether it's splitting water or uh, whether it's oxidizing water or reducing carbon dioxide. Um, they know about this. Um, by the way, the reason most people work on splitting water is that pretty well any material will split water. It won't necessarily split it at a high efficiency. Um, but getting CO2 to work and proving that the products actually come from the CO2 without C13 labeling, I would argue most of the papers out there that have tried this didn't do C13 labeling and the products were not C13 labeled. And so that meant that it was looking at, at contamination. And so when you've got low conversion rates, you know, a microgram of carbon contamination in a gram of material will give you fuel for 24, 48, 100 hours. But it's not coming from CO2, it's coming from carbon embedded in the catalyst. And that has, uh, I don't really want to get into that sort of controversial, but there are a number of papers coming out called Fact or Fiction now. And it's not inconceivable that the paper that inspired us was also fiction, based on what we've been doing. That would be interesting if the, if the paper that inspired us to get in the field Turns out, but it's hard to prove because you don't actually have that material. You'd actually have to have that material to prove it. Anyway, you need something that harvests light. I'll go into more details of that. So clearly you want to harvest as many photons as you can, generate as many photo-generated um, electrons and holes as you can. 
So these are the pieces of the puzzle. And this is where it gets interesting. Everyone knows water oxidation, for example, involves four holes. That's a lot of holes. Normally, we work with one electron in one hole. So here's four holes. And it generates oxygen. Well, that's like the leaf. And it makes four protons. I need those protons, and this is where it gets tricky, um, with four electrons to make, for example, methanol. And so you see, the, you see basically the challenge here. The challenge is harvest as much light as possible and keep the electrons and holes apart long enough so you can do chemistry. And one of the challenges is that to do CO2 and water simultaneously, you're basically dealing with multi-electron, multi-hole, multi-proton, all working at the same time, which is completely different to a solar cell, completely different to a light-emitting diode. So this is challenging. So I call it the 1,000 challenge. It's actually maybe even more than that, because if you look at the production rates, they're normally nanomoles to micromoles per hour per gram of catalyst, and we need millimoles. And the problem here, it took me a while to figure this out, actually. It may seem obvious now that I'm mentioning it, and I don't know how many of you sort of realize this. The challenge is you've got to keep these, you've got to discover a photocatalyst, a material, which will keep these apart, and the leaf knows how to keep them apart long enough so the fuel chemistry can compete. If these recombine faster than the fuel chemistry, then clearly the efficiency will be very, very low. So it's a competition. It's the competition between re recombination versus surface chemistry. That's the challenge. That's the puzzle. So here's an interesting plot. Who's in this game? Who are the solar fuels nations? And I will now show you the top 12. Hmm, China, Japan, USA. Oh, there's Britain, number 12. Where's Canada? We're so green. We're so green. Yeah, you're looking at it here. <laughs> um, it's also interesting if you look at the number of papers in this area, there was an explosion of research when the climate debate began. So scientists get it. Scientists get it. Chemists get it. Material science engineers get this. Chemical engineers get it. They know that this is probably the greatest challenge facing humanity today. It's more important than going to Mars. It's more important than the cure for cancer if we really do have a climate problem. So I call that the 1,000 challenge. <clears throat> so yeah, so I basically decided at this stage in my life, with 45 years of experience in materials, this would be a piece of cake. And so I told all of the, well, there was an election. And we had a champion. Um, and he said, this is something we have to support. And he managed to help us get the money. And I put together an interdisciplinary team of about 20 fantastic co-workers and faculty that cross all the disciplines from experimental to computational. And we got this together mighty fast, mighty fast. 
And one of them is here, actually. Where are you, John? Where are you? Uh, there he is. Put his hand up. There he is. Look, he came all the way from Toronto to listen to this lecture. <laughs> okay. By the way, um, one of the ways to stay young is to work with young people. And this is a terrific team of youngsters. I don't know if you recognize any of these. Chuck Mims worked with Exxon uh, for about 20 years of his career. He knows how to go from molecules and materials to scaling. Uh, we've got an optical engineer, an electrical engineer, photovoltaics guy in there. Uh, it would take me too much time to go through, but you know, hardcore heterogeneous catalysis. We have everything that you need there to attack this problem. And we've got theoretical people there, computation. I don't know if you, Aaron, if you know Chandra Veer Singh, but anyway, he sort of does more or less what you do. So yeah, there, there are fantastic opportunities for CO2 uh, from a computational materials modeling point of view. One of the, oh, there's, uh, no, I won't talk about it now. Um, okay, so this is the challenge. You look at the periodic table of about 100 elements. This is how materials people think, okay? But you, you, you've got to realize that, you know, if inside this Blackberry, whether you like it or not, about 100 materials, chemists made them. Engineers put them together, right? They get all the credit, but you never hear about the chemists who are inside this machine. So we go into the laboratory, there's a chemist, He's going to make materials, and he sort of thinks using sort of, I hate to use the word intelligent design, lots of experience. You know, they know solid state chemistry, solid state physics. You know, they know synthetic chemistry. They know all about molecules and all of these things. And they have to sort of think, what is it that I need to put together? And it is, in my opinion, this is a grand challenge for materials chemistry. Carbon dioxide is a grand challenge. Because after 30 years, we're still at nanomoles to micromoles. We've got to get find a thousand. So my sister happened to be, when she was young, a top fashion designer in London. And she had to choose a material, right? And it had to have a color. She had to have a design in mind, a blueprint. And she'd sort of put this together and assemble it in a particular way to create form and function utility and so forth. That's more or less how we work in the laboratory. Um, we have to choose an elemental composition. We have to think of the size and shape of the material. It counts, the morphology. We worry about the surface structure with respect to the bulk. They're often different, so we have to know these things. We, we, need, we need active sites, right? To do this type of chemistry, you need surface. Therefore, nano comes into it. When things become very small, the surface becomes very large compared to the, the volume. So nano comes into the story. And if you put these nanomaterials together, you can create porosity. So this gives us active sites and accessibility of the carbon dioxide in the water into the materials. Right? Um, in the world of solid state chemistry and physics, we, we worry about controlling the energetics in a system as well as the kinetics, the dynamics. So we need to control what we call dopants defects, and we worry about impurities, very important. Uh, we have to match materials and molecules reduction and oxidation potentials, because I am oxidizing water and reducing carbon dioxide simultaneously. 
And so we have to think about how does the material match with the molecule. I would say the majority of work is done in water. In the gas phase, it's very different. I don't see a global process in water, but I can see a global gas phase process. Industry knows how to do that. We do not know, maybe Aaron knows and his colleagues, but I need to know the energetics of CO2 and water from the gas phase adsorbed, not in aqueous solution from redox potentials. That's a real problem for us, right, John? <laughs> uh, we, now, here's a conundrum. I want to harvest as much light as possible which in the language of solid state chemistry and physics means I need high optical absorption strength, which means it has to be a very allowed process. But I want the electron and hole that I generate to live a long time. And this goes against that. These want to relax quickly on the picosecond to nanosecond time scale. So how do you make a material that absorbs a lot but lives a long time? Nature figured out how to do that. When you look inside the leaf and you look at the Z scheme and you look at the cascade between the oxidizer and the reducer, there's an energy cascade where the hole and the electron are separated. That's so complex. We don't want to do it that way. I don't want 30 components. I don't want any organics in there. It's going to sit in the sun for a long, long time. I want one or two or three components at the most. You'll see why soon. So the lifetimes of photogenerated electrons, holes, and protons, I have to worry about those. I have to worry also when I make electrons, holes, and protons, I have to worry about how they move, their mobility, their, char their charge transport. And in the end, I need to understand the chemistry that's going on on the surface. I need to measure the rates of these reactions, and in this way I can learn about mechanisms. So you can see just from the 10 steps, and I may have missed a few, this is a biggie. This is really, really a challenge. Not to get it working at nanomoles, but to get it working at millimoles. So I'm betting on metal oxides, <laughs> still. I, I, I'm not going to bet on chalcogenides. I'm not going to bet on anything with organics and the way that these organic solar cells work. I, I want this to be really, really robust. Okay, so the leaf uses a metal oxide for the oxidizer. That's roughly a little cluster in so-called photosystem two. Oxides have got fantastically diverse chemical and physical properties. Um, they're chemically and physically, chemically, physically, and light stable, often. Aqueous is much tougher than gas phase, right, to keep the stability. That's another reason to go gas phase. You can produce nanoscale powders and films um, out of metal oxides. That's well known, many industries. You can scale these and manufacture them because in the end it's going to be the largest chemical factory on Earth to be globally significant if you want to deal with 46 gigatons. And it's going to be earth abundant, non-toxic, and low cost. Otherwise, it will not compete with other ways of making methane and methanol and carbon monoxide. So this is a useful plot. Um, this is the natural abundance of the elements, atomic number. And this is the abundance. And the, they're color-coded. The major industrial metals are in red. So notice iron. Everyone loves iron and copper. 
nickel. Precious metals in purple and rare elements in blue. Now, you know what's interesting? This has been written about in the literature. It's called the materials dilemma. This is the dilemma we face. Because remember, we're academics. And obviously, we want to make a contribution scientifically. And many of us would love it to be technologically significant. But the dilemma is, is that often the rarest, most expensive materials, like platinum, um, where's platinum gone? These things in here. Lost platinum, there it is, gold, iridium, osmium. They're often the most photoactive, photoactive. So the challenge is, make the most abundant, cheapest materials more photoactive. Right? That's the dilemma. But if you want to publish papers, you often put the expensive ones together because they work. But if you really want to make a significant contribution to this planet, to humanity, sounds sort of silly really saying that, but you know, I am sort of passionate about this, we've got to figure out how to work with rust, <laughs> for example. And I don't want to work in the UV with titania because that's only 3% of the solar spectrum. So it's got to absorb in the visible. So everyone in this field knows this. And funding agencies know this, and referees know this, and industrial people know this, and so forth. So um, let me give you the prevailing view. This is the prevailing view. What you will find, by the way, if you look back at my career, or if I look back at my career, I've tried to lead rather than follow. I've tried. This field is a tough one to lead in, because when you read what's out there in the literature, almost every conceivable composition that you can imagine has been studied. So where do you go for something distinctive and original that's going to work? This is a challenge for the youngsters coming in this field, and this is a challenge for the supervisors. So anyway, this is the way we look at it. We have these energy scales, and we have these, these, these little rectangles on there. And you see here's iron oxide, tungsten oxide. So I'm giving you some of the standards. Silicon is in there too, some nitrides, chalcogenides, and things like that. And these are redox potentials for reducing carbon dioxide to various products and oxidizing water. So all of these have been known for a long, long time. Right? These energies are known. And these energies are known uh, for these types of materials. And I've only taken a few of what's been looked at. And the key parameters here are the energy of the bottom, which is the valence band. The energy of the top is the conduction band. The energy gap between them is called the band gap. And it's not actually on this plot, but there's an electrochemical or chemical potential in here called the Fermi level, which is a, a key energy too. And what you've got to do, you remember the 10 steps? You've got to go in with your 10 steps and make a material with all of those choices and perform the following. Let's take these three. Notice all of these energies are lower than water oxidation. So these will thermodynamically, on paper here, oxidize water. So you see how you choose. How do you reduce carbon dioxide? For example, this one here you can see has an energy that's higher than CO2 going to formic acid or, say, methanol and so forth. 
So, so that is our sort of our blueprint, right? That's our guide for how we think about going in the lab to make these types of materials. My problem is, is I don't want to work in aqueous solution. I want to work in the gas phase. And these numbers are not terribly good. And these numbers here are not necessarily for the size and the shape and the surface type of material that you've made and how it's assembled. So these are some of the challenges that you've got in the field when you sort of read, uh, when you read papers in this area. So again, this is a prevailing view taken out of one of the reviews that maybe some of you recognize. And uh, the, these, are these represent nanomaterials uh, as a circle, so just called it its nanoscale. You don't want it to be too nanoscale, by the way. I mean, the, the scientists here will understand this. I don't want quantum size effects. I don't, last thing I want to do is shift it into the UV. I want it to be in the visible. So again, you've got to understand when quantum size effects appear. Every material is different in terms of when you get quantum confinement. So again, that's a challenge. You've got to control the surface structure, the bulk structure, what's on the surface, and so forth. But uh, I'm not going to go through all of these schemes, but you know, we look at things called Z schemes, which is a bit like the leaf, uh, two components, both excited. The electron hops from there to there. And then you've got these little gray things on there, which enhance the kinetics. They're called reservoirs, electron and whole reservoirs, and so you can sort of see it's complex. That We're trying to sort of copy the leaf here. We know more or less what's in the leaf. And again, if you keep the particles separate, which is another approach, then you've got to connect the two in some way in solution with what is called a mediator that allows electrons to move from one to the other if you want a, a solution phase scheme where they're separate and so forth. Again, with uh, kinetic boosters on the surface, and it, it's not very likely you'll get a single material that does both CO2 reduction and water oxidation, because this gap would have to be in the UV. Right? So you sort of need two materials where you can connect them, and they can be in the visible, but connected together, you can basically get the electron high enough to do the reduction and the hole low enough to do the oxidation. Now, I know some of that will be a bit mysterious to people not in the field, um, but these are the prevailing view, different approaches to light-powered oxidation of water and reduction of CO2. Okay, um, what about the process? So what you will find out there, that there are two paradigms. There's so-called photocatalysis, um, where uh, there's no electricity involved, just purely light. And there's the photoelectrochemical, which often has uh, an applied voltage to overcome all sorts of resistances in the system. And, uh, and again, um, maybe, I, I never say never, maybe the aqueous uh, will turn out to be amazing. Um, but I had to make a bet, and I bet on gas phase, simply because of scaling. Again, this is the prevailing view. If you're a materials engineer, uh, you have to make choices. You're going to take sunlight, and you're going to either be aqueous, so this is aqueous photocatalysis or aqueous photoelectrochemistry. This one down here is gas phase photocatalysis and gas phase photoelectrochemistry. Not too many people are working on this. I, th I find this very exciting. This is essentially running a fuel cell in reverse, driven by sunlight. Interesting concept. So these are things we're working on. 
here, and again, they're going to be a two-component system. You have to put them together in just the right way, with just the right size, just the right surface area, just the right porosity, just the right absorption characteristics. The whole ten things have to be in there. So these are the decisions you have to make. I'm taking you through what goes on in the lab. You know, I, because of the audience, I thought rather than giving you know, huge amount of synthesis and characterization and all the property measurements and things like that, which I couldn't do anyway because of intellectual property problems. <laughs> so you're not going to learn what the magic material is because everyone wants to know what it is. Okay, so one of <laughs> by taking contract money, they want to know how much is it going to cost. And can you scale it? Okay, so we took a system like this, uh, which I described to you, and because Chuck Mims has done this type of thing at Exxon for many times, many years, he did an analysis. It's not quite back of the envelope. It's uh, a first step. And there are lots of assumptions here. So he assumes solar flux, lifetime capital dominates of the plant, of the solar fuels plant. Uh, the efficiency, we went for the Department of Energy, that's a big number, 10%. That means we're going to need 10,000 improvement to get up there. And the efficiency of the power plant, and then he did a steady state materials balance calculation, so he knows the cost of natural gas, he knows the cost of CO2 separations, he, he puts in a collection area for 100 megawatt, he took 1 to 5 kilometers, right, for the collection area. Um, and basically, without sunline concentration, uh, the required photocatalytic activity for one micron thick photocatalyst layer. So we went for millimoles per hour per gram. And we came up with a number of $125 per meter squared of the solar fuels collecting area. And um, he felt that was a, a good number to begin with. It will, don't take this number as... As, as gospel, it's, um, it's a first shot. Uh, there are lots of other things in there, like CO2 probably would have to be purified. There's going to be, if you take it out of air or smokestacks and things, there's going to be all sorts of poisons in that that will poison your catalysts and things. And so there'll be all sorts of other costs in the engineering. You know engineers love these calculations. But anyway, that was our first shot. So I don't know how we're doing on time. Pretty good, almost finished. So this is a, a timeline. So if you sort of think about it, what are we doing? I mean, it was very hard to convince the people who sponsored me that actually, well, they thought I was going to solve the problem in two years, and they thought we were doing technology. Maybe I gave them the wrong impression when I first presented, but the reality is, is that this is basic research which is directed. Let's call it directed basic research. In other words, I know the problem I'm trying to solve. I'd like to make solar fuels at higher rates and high efficiencies and selective. Um, and that's where we are. So we're at the molecules to materials. Um, and I would say, you've heard it here, I predict in five years from now, we will have this material. When I say we, the community. I, I want anyone to invent it. If, it. if it's us, great. But we need to invent this material if we're going to have this global 
this global solution. We need this material. Okay? And then the applied through to development will probably be five more years. And manufacturing, notice these overlap, so I promise the sponsors that these will overlap. We'll be doing some of the development. We're scaling, for example. It turns out one of the spin-offs that I'll talk about, um, Opalux, um, knows how to make hundreds of kilometers of these types of materials for other purposes. So we know how to scale once we got the materials. Um, so, uh, and then through to manufacturing. So just to end up, of course, um, if you do discover the silver bullet and you do protect your intellectual property and so forth, um, in the end you're going to need some partners. So uh, who do we have? Well, um, it turns out this guy's an interesting guy. This is Chuck Zumo. He's Vice President of Alternative and Emerging Technology. Um, since 2000, they've invested about $3 billion in clean energy projects, and they're generating quite a lot of, uh, of megawatts. Uh, just to sort of show you where they operate, they've got $51 billion, 10,000 employed, largest liquid pipeline, so it's a pipeline operation. And as you know, we may not be able to go south, but we have to go east and west, <laughs> and that's going to be a challenge. Um, they're the largest natural gas distribution and um, transmission. Anyway, you see the idea. Um, they do all sorts of things. They've invested in wind and solar and large fuel cells. And the thing that I found very interesting, and in fact at the Toronto Board of Trade where he presented and I presented, he spent time with me looking at this because Enbridge normally goes for long-term and medium-term. We're really, sorry, short-term and medium. This is actually a long-term investment. You've got to be patient on this one. But the payoff is, is gigantic. Turns out Morgan Solar do uh, solar concentration. I need that. The more photons I've got, the faster it will go, in principle. Uh, hydrogenics, um, they do electrochemical production of hydrogen. I need hydrogen. I like hydrogen. If you give me hydrogen, the rates of these reactions are pretty good. So cheap hydrogen, CO2, it doesn't have to be water. We don't have to copy the leaf exactly. But we're starting with water. Make me cheap hydrogen that's competitive with other sources. And I will use that and drive the CO2 reduction with sunlight. So you've got lots of questions. We've got some answers, CO2 to methanol. So that's the end of the talk, more or less. So that's the thesis that I'm presenting. Uh, the scientists may be a bit frustrated because I haven't told them what they want to know. I know that. Um, but I think hopefully for the students and the rest, I've given you a good feel for how you go in the laboratory and deal with this. It's a tough one. Um, I'm also involved with a, an artist. Um, in America called Todd Seiler. I hope to give a presentation called Art Nano Innovations, where we're taking the nano world into the art world. Um, and it just so happens he was coming out of, I think, the Guardier recently, and he saw this on the wall. And he sends it to me, right? Jeff Ozen, Green Explore. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and so I thought I'd end, for those of you who haven't been to Canada, for those of you who haven't been to uh, University of Toronto, when Linda and I first got off the plane, I thought, I'm back in Oxford. <laughs> and uh, this is 
a truly amazing university in terms of it's located in the center of the city. It's very, very treed and green. Uh, it's got a long history. Um, it's a city university. It fuses the old and the new. It goes back to 1837 where it got its charter. It got a couple of Nobel Prizes. It gave us insulin and Tingham Best. And John Polanyi was there who gave us uh, uh, chemical lasers. Um, so recently we were very happy. It was ranked 17th overall. Um, so I'll just flick you through some pictures to sort of show you our campus. This is biomedical engineering. That was one of the colleges, by the way. So we have a college system, tutorials. That's our famous tower, heart houses, where we go to the gym a lot. This is now built. This is our technology convergence center. We have everything. This is in the most expensive piece of land in the city. It's called Mars. You can check it out. Um, they've got hundreds and hundreds of patents for sale, if you're interested. Uh, you should look through those, those who are interested. Um, and uh, basically, this goes from an idea through to the products. That's the idea. This is Ontario's uh, really hoping to generate a very, very large number of new companies, and they're doing extremely well. And there's another college. And that's Fort Book, we call it. I think it's the largest book depository in North America, or it was. Trouble here is finding a book. <laughs> Another one. Uh, this is where I think, um, Peter, was that where Banting and Bet Best did their work? Or the first chemistry laboratory? First chemistry laboratory in this round building here. And uh, that's Convocation Hall with administration and all the graduations. Uh, yes, we have. Quadrangles, beautiful manicured colleges and grass, and we even have cloisters. And so as I said to you, when I got off the plane, I thought I was back home, <laughs> but I wasn't. And so uh, Toronto with love. That's the famous picture of Toronto. We're sitting on uh, Lake Ontario. This, this was the tallest tower in the world. No longer anymore. It's quite an amazing city. Thanks very much.